On the last day of the Outward Bound course that I recently completed, one of my teammates, one of my course mates got lost, like seriously lost, like lost for hours. We started that final day by waking up at about 5.15 in the morning, not a natural state for me, and going out and running our final challenge, a, about a 6K, 7K race through the woods. And all of us ended, eventually got to the finish line, except for one of us. One of our teammates that we had cried with and laughed with and struggled with and triumphed with. People who really, during that week, they knew each other, I fell in love with. We bonded so tightly. There was such a sense of teamwork, brotherhood and sisterhood. And she just didn't show up. Someone who actually had struggled and sacrificed a great deal to be there on course and really broke, and broke open during that experience. It got to 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock and 1 o'clock came around, which is the time that all the rest of us had to leave for the airport to get our flights back home. And it felt like we were leaving an appendage, a part of ourselves, back on the course. We had to get out of there because the leaders of Outward Bound told us, the quicker we move you out of there, the more people we can direct to looking for her. She's lost. And i got to tell you, to leave the course like that, and not try to tell ourselves all these stories. You know, sometimes we like to fill in the blanks of our lives with catastrophes, we imagine, you know. Not to fill in the blanks, but simply to keep that heart space of love and concern and, yes, worry and hope open. To leave the space open in that way was a remarkable thing. It was one of the most alive times that I can recall in my life. And if you ever have to uh, re-enter the world after not showering for eight days and living out in the woods, I really recommend the Asheville Airport, especially on a Saturday afternoon at about one. It's a very quiet, quiet place. There's not a lot of stress. There's not a lot of stuff going on. And so we said our final I love yous and hugs and handshakes and, and goodbyes and tears, still not knowing what had happened to one of our teammates that we had spent this very intense, very meaningful week with. And I flew from Asheville to Charlotte, and by the time, thankfully, that I arrived in Charlotte, there was a, a message for me from the director of the Outward Brown program saying that my teammate had been found. Charlotte Airport, other than that happy occurrence, was a very different experience for me than the Asheville Airport. The Charlotte airport on a Saturday afternoon or this particular Saturday afternoon in fall was all abuzz with all kinds of activity and people racing here or there and people not really watching out for where they were going or for me because I just seemed to get keep getting bumped into maybe because I was sort of lost lonely on a cloud still so connected back to the course that I had just left. And when I got to my gate, which had been changed three times as well, too. There were a third as many seats as we needed for all the people on this overbooked, sold-out flight. And I had entered that airport from this open, vulnerable heart space. And I just sunk into despair for what I started to feel. Because as all the people clustered around the gates and the flight was a little late, I could feel us all start. I take a step forward. That person next to me takes a step forward. The other person takes a step forward and pretty soon there's like no oxygen left in that area because we're all crowding each other and all trying to outmaneuver each other. Some people placing their bag right here so another person you know, couldn't do an end run around them. And there was just this sense of 
attention. And I felt it in myself. I started telling myself these stories. Like before when I had, had purchased my ticket weeks before, I had you know, gotten that, you know, U.S. Airways calls it choice seats upgrade. Didn't used to have to pay 20 bucks for these, but I did. And so I was boarding in zone two. And I said to myself, well, at least I'm not like those suckers who were boarding in zones three, four, and five after me. They might not get on the flight. I will get on the flight. And I was so angry and upset with myself to re-enter the world in this way. You see, the airport was teeming with so much stuff and yet seemed such a scarce and barren place to me compared to where I had just been. I think what finally cinched it for me, what finally got me outraged was that these three young folks who looked like they had probably never wanted for anything materially in their life came into the boarding and the gate area and finding that there was no place to sit, spied off to the side, reserved for other people, three unoccupied wheelchairs and dumped themselves right down into those wheelchairs. I felt like saying, those are not for you. And... There's some worse language going on in my head as well, too. I won't share with that now with you. And it got me thinking. This difference between where I had been in that open heart space and that wonderful, even sacred vulnerability and sense of connection and sense of abundant love to this place that felt very scarce and very barren of the things that I had previously been esteeming. It got me thinking of this, which is a slide I shared with some of you about six, nine months ago. And it's all about... You know, when we talk about living in abundance or living in scarcity, it's actually just not that simple. I think it's actually about how engaged we are energetically with abundance or scarcity. So let's take an example here. Number one, the green down below. If we are having a scarcity view of life, you know, there's not enough. There's not enough for me, but I'm disengaged. I'm passive. I'm probably going to be comparing myself to other people. How am I doing? Am I better than? Am I worse than? Am I up? Am I down? How's my stock being valued here? If, however, we're active and we're also seeing life is very scarce, that's kind of where I was in the boarding area there, we're going to be competitive. We're going to think there's not much left and I better get in this fight and I better get my share because someone else is going to take my share. That's what that airport felt like to me. But what Outward Bound felt like to me, especially in the beginning when I was learning a lot from a lot of other people and there was abundant sense of teaching and compassion I wasn't quite engaged yet, but I felt deeply appreciative of everything that was being shared with me. And at the deepest level of the course, it was a situation of being absolutely engaged in my life with a tremendous sense of abundance. That everything that was there was all we needed. And it felt like such an amazing spirit of cooperation. Now, I am not recommending for myself or for you in case you're wondering, that we all go live in the woods in small groups for a week and don't shower. You can if you want to. I will probably end up returning there at some point in my life. It was that powerful for me. But what I want to say is that the airport was no more of a quote-unquote natural human environment than was that small group living in the woods for a week. Wherever we are in our lives, in the woods or in the airport, in our homes, I think the question posed is how aware and awake are we to the environment in which we are living? 
How are we choosing to shape our environment? How are we choosing to care for others in our environment? How are we choosing to be mindfully in our environment? In that kind of airport mindset that I was experiencing or in that open heart space that I was experiencing with my teammates? These questions about how we choose to care or choose to tune out or turn out. These are questions very much before us right now as a society. These are questions about as lively and as meaningful and as difficult to answer as any other time as I have been on this earth. It is a moment in which many of us are asking ourselves and maybe not knowing the exact right answers of what we would do, but are turning into the reality. Who counts? Who is dismissed? Who gets paid attention to? Who is rendered invisible? Who is injured through being rendered invisible? This is a moment in which many of us are asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to be a society that seems to be growing more unequal by the day? Now, there are some numbers that some of you might be familiar with that bear this out. They come from the census data. They come from the Congressional Budget Office that shows Relatively uncontroversially, well, the interpretation of them, that's where it gets controversial. But that for most Americans over the last 25 or 30 years, incomes have largely remained stagnant. Save for one group, now called the so-called 1%. And certain segments of that 1% have experienced tremendous income growth over the last 25 years. Put this in even sharper relief. In 2005, the average American CEO earned pay 262 times more than that of the average worker. Putting this to even more context, there are about 260 days in the working year, 260 Monday through Friday periods. That means that the average CEO earns more in one working day than the average worker earns throughout the entirety of a year's worth of working days. And by the way, the United States ratio, 262 to 1, is much greater than it is in other countries, other developed market economies. It wasn't always this way, however. In 1965, that ratio was about 24 to 1. In 1978, it was about 35 to 1. In 1989, it was about 71 to 1. And it's grown and grown and grown since then. In other words, something has really changed in terms of how we value some people's work in the society and how perhaps we do not value other people's work. By the way, I am the CEO of Wellsprings. I was not included in those numbers. (laughs) They would have drawn that average down just a little bit, perhaps. So what's the effect of all this? What's the effect that we might see in our lives, in our society? I think we can sense it, but I want to call your attention to something that I put on my Facebook page earlier this week, and we'll put up at the Wellsprings Facebook page later today. It's a TED Talk. You know the TED Talks? That's for technology, education, design, these 20-minute or less talks about some nature, some part of society or arts or culture, entertainment. It's by a guy named Richard Wilkinson, who is a British academic researcher. And what he has done throughout most of his career is he studies societies and the effects of extremes of income inequality within those societies. And what he finds is this, and that societies in which there is less, not none, but less income inequality between the extremes, less, that there is on the whole greater life expectancy, 
children score better in school tests. There are lower levels of incarceration, lower levels of addiction, lower levels of mental illness, greater social mobility. And there is overall indexes of greater child well-being. The U.S., according to his estimation, does not score well at all in many of these things because we have a very high variance in income inequality. I encourage you to go take a look at it yourself and make your own decisions. These are my impressions. Here's the thing he gets into a little bit deeper, which is that in societies that have lower levels of income inequality, that there is less variance between the very rich and the very poor. He finds, not surprisingly, that the poor benefit in those societies much better than poor in societies that have great income stratification. But all people in those societies end up doing better, are happier, are healthier. Have less anxiety about something that maybe crosses through your minds every once in a while. It's something I've heard the voice of a lot in Chester County in the time that I've done ministry here. Status anxiety. Keeping up with the Joneses. Is my house as big or as nice as their house? A lot of judgment perhaps sometimes that I may not earn as much as other people or our family may not earn as much. It's that competitive and comparative mindset that I experienced in the airport that is aligned more greatly with societies like the U.S. And perhaps most tellingly, what shows up over and over again in societies in which the very rich and the very poor are greatly stratified is that they tend to be low-trust societies. People just don't trust each other all that much right now in the U.S., He ends kind of poetically with a piece of poetry that I think probably most of us know, John Donne, that none of us is an island. Thich Nhat Hanh, the teacher we use week after week after week here at Wellsprings, talks about this reality of relationship with one word. He says that the truth of life is interbeing. We use this example in our 2.0 course sometimes, listening to our lives, that Thich Nhat Hanh says, this piece of paper is not an independent piece of paper. This piece of paper proves the existence of the whole universe. Because if you look really deeply at this piece of paper, you will see the forest from which it came and the soil in which it was grown and the logger who cut it down and what the logger had for breakfast and the logger's parents. And you can see in one small part of the world, if you just scratch the surface a very little bit, that there is always relationship wherever we are. The implications related to what Richard Wilkinson shared is this, as I understand it. That wherever relationship is frayed or unacknowledged or wherever there is tension, trust will diminish because relationship is a key indicator of our happiness in life. Now, I got to tell you what really brings this home to me, what really absolutely brings this home to me. And it may be bringing up a sore subject with some of you. So I'm going to take a drink of water before I share it with you just to prepare you. The Phillies lost. Are we all are you all over that yet? Maybe. Uh, maybe not. OK. No. OK. Well, sorry. I'm not making fun. I'm not making fun. The, the last day before I went on the outward bound course, I was in um, Asheville, North Carolina, a hotel room watching that amazing game. Yes, I know many of you didn't like the outcome, but it was an amazing game. One nothing final five deciding games. Those don't happen very often. And as a few people have reminded me since I've gotten back and yes, You may not know it about me yet, but I am a Yankees fan. I come by it honestly. Yes, I deserve it. I know. As some people reminded me, well, the Phillies made it 
longer into the playoffs than the Yankees did. No. One day later and losing in the same five-game series doesn't include... I mean, it's amazing how the Philly mindset just wants to one-up New York in whatever way it can. But when someone asked me about, you know, the Yankees losing, how I was doing, I was actually okay with it. And they asked me another question. How do you like the new stadium? The new stadium, which has been around for three years. In the Bronx, right next to where the old one stood. And I said, I haven't been. Which is strange if you know me. I went to Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium, about once a year. Often more than once a year, between the ages of like six and my mid-thirties. I mean, literally, I once told someone close to me at one point, if I die an untimely death, I want to be cremated and I want you to sneak up to the side just over the railing at old Yankee Stadium when it was just Yankee Stadium and deposit a little bit of my ashes there because I want part of me to be commingled with Yankee Stadium for the rest of my life. But everything is impermanent in life and I don't get that opportunity anymore. But I got to tell you why I have not been to new Yankee Stadium. The championship seats. Have you ever watched a Yankees game? You'll see that about half of these seats that actually look like Barca loungers right in back of home plate and to the sides are almost never completely filled. These incredibly high price seats, $1,500, $2,000, $4,000, mostly are not being sat in. It doesn't mean they're not sold. What it means is that the goodies that they give away to these people who purchase the seats that they offer in a separate section actually keeps them away from being in the stands with the rest of the folks. If you look at championship seats in Yankee Stadium, New Yankee Stadium, they're separated from everyone else by a cement like carve out. It's like there should be a moat and crocodiles separating this from everyone else. They have armed guards there, literally not letting anyone else even walk through this area. So yes, people, I tell you, and I swear, that the problem with America right now is New Yankee Stadium. (laughs) I mean it. Because all of us are involved. Because what ends up happening... Is they have the energy at places like Citizens Bank Park, where, of course, there's different prices according to where you're close to the stands and close to the action. But the extremes are not so great. At New Yankee Stadium, because the people closest to the action are rarely there or seemingly interested at all, everything suffers. The entire energy is diminished. That's what Richard Wilkinson is talking about when there are extremes in our society. So what do we do with these observations if they sit heavy on your heart? If you are concerned about the state of our culture and the state of our economy? Well, I got to tell you as someone who, honestly, I say this without pride or shame, it just is. Especially in my teens, I grew up in that 1%. My family lived for about a decade right off of Park Avenue in a triplex apartment on East 79th Street. One of the most expensive sort of 20 square blocks of real estate in the entire world. I grew up in that 1%, at least part of the time. And so I take to heart this story that I'm going to share with you right now. It's from the gospel tradition, from the Jesus traditions, in which a so-called rich young man or rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus gives a straightforward answer or seemingly a straightforward answer. Observe the commandments. 
Don't kill. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And sort of, it's almost like tax it on here a little bit. One more thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the gospel stories don't have like, almost like Shakespeare, don't have any stage directions in them. So right after saying, and love your neighbor as yourself, the rich young man, you can almost imagine, shoots back saying, without even thinking about it, I already do those. What else you got? He didn't say the what else you got part, but it's almost like it's there. And I think Jesus goes like kind of Zen koan on him, asking him an impossible thing. Well, if you've already done those, sell everything you have, give it all to the poor and follow me. I think the story would have been different if the rich young man would have stopped for a second on those words, love your neighbor as yourself, and recognize that was difficult enough anyway. To stop at that moment and to recognize every day, that's a challenge. It's an adventure. It's an orientation of the heart to be able to really aspire to love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't need anything. Me personally, I don't need anything more difficult than that. But the text says, after the final injunction, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. He said the rich young man walked away sad. I think he walked away sad because he was confronted by his own power and privilege and place and refused to stay in the conversation. Jesus loved to talk with people. It's the rich young man who chose to walk away. I can tell you my first lessons in being a neighbor come from him. For many of us, isn't it true? Would you be, could you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? I mean, that's a question. And what I love is that Mr. Rogers never answered that question. Daniel, Tiger Stripe Taylor, is that him? I like the platypus family more, but anyway. The question was never fully answered because the question never can be fully answered. Can we actually say to ourselves, yes, I have completed loving my neighbor as myself. What else do you got for me? It is a daily challenge, a daily aspiration to live with greater love and compassion and justice. This adventure of being a true neighbor is something that truly is an orientation of the heart. And it is something that many of us are being challenged, perhaps more challenged and in uncomfortable ways, to look at at any time in our lives. Now, there are some specific steps we can choose to take. There was a really good article that actually I also put up on my Facebook page this past week from Bloomberg News. Not exactly Democracy Now! or a radical news outlet. And the title of it was, Occupy Your Wallet. If you are upset about some of the ways that our society is valuing certain people's jobs over others, here's some choices you can make. The first one, my wife and I are already in the process of doing. Moving our money from a big bank to a local credit union. They interviewed John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, who said that if we want to invest our money in ways that do not put an incentive upon trades that may be considered risky or may increase risky behavior... Choose passively invested indexed funds. Take a look before we're going to invest in individual companies. How active a shareholder board or board of directors do they have so that they are actually paying their CEO according to actual performance and don't have something written in the fine print that if they choose to leave, they'll get a $30 million payout. Those are some steps we can choose to take with our money, with your money, if you wish. 
There is itself the Occupy movement itself, about which I have somewhat, I can't say ambivalent, but divided feelings. I'm not quite sure what it is, but this is what I know more than anything that I am certain of, is that already it has changed the conversation we are having this country in this country and has directed more attention to people who might be left behind. I must tell you, I am not an activist by nature at all. There has never been a social or political movement that I have been involved with over the course of my 41 years that I have not thought about leaving because it has fallen so far short of its stated aspirations. But I also take a cue from Dr. King, who understood that all movements, even the best of them, are imperfect and they bring things before us that we have to face sometimes. He said a law cannot force This is his language. A law cannot force a man to love me, but a law that will keep that man from lynching me is good enough. That's why it's not just a matter of getting involved or spending our money differently, although I invite you to do that if you wish. And if you want to go check out Occupy Philly, if you haven't been down there, come along with me. Get in touch. I've been down there before. I'm going to go down again. I want to have more firsthand exposure. Come down, we can do a little field trip together. But even beyond all of that information gathering and the choices we take, it really does come back to that desire to occupy our own lives in a deeper way. To not be whatever our social class, like that rich young man. Because there are conversations going on that may trouble us and we don't know the easy answers and there may not be easy answers and we may feel judgment, we may feel shame, we may feel that other people are telling us what to believe and so we just completely opt out. I think that moment right now, this moment right now is too rich. Especially as a spiritual community, we can model to the world a different way of being. A way that does not shy away from difficult questions. A way that keep faith with our especially universalist heritage that believes there is a love big enough to finally and fundamentally include all of us. This is why I want to bring to your attention again the day of service next Saturday. It is only two hours. Will it absolutely change the world? No, it won't. But it is a step in the direction of commitment to loving our neighbors as ourselves, and it is something that we can do together, especially in working with the clinic. I got to tell you, it was wonderful to accept this honor on behalf of Wellsprings last Wednesday. But what really got me was sitting there and talking to the medical professionals who were at the table and listening to their stories of the people who come to the clinic and the people who they now have to turn away because they do not have any more space. People who are working, people who have just lost their jobs, people who are not just hanging out waiting for a handout, but people who are deeply worried about themselves and their families. And I think the question of justice requires us, especially as a community that has done a lot of wonderful charity, to ask a related but different question. It's like as one said, when we see people perhaps drowning in the river, It's important to go in there and fish them out. But if we see another person drowning in the river and another person drowning in the river and another person drowning in the river, that yes, while it's important to drag them out, perhaps even more important is to walk up the riverbank upstream and ask why the hell do they keep falling in in the first place?
That is a question of justice. Ultimately, I believe this is a stressful and chaotic moment in the time of our country, and it's also a wonderfully generative and creative moment. I ultimately believe it's not really the 99% and the 1%, but that it is the 100%, that we are all involved with each other at the deepest level. And the moment that we wake up to that is the moment that we make, especially the heritage of our universalism and our love that does embrace and encompass all more real. To face the truth that we can all be greedy and we can all be selfish and that our choices have ramifications more than just our own. And to flip it the other way and to recognize that within us, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, there are seeds of love and kindness as well, too, that we were born with. And do we choose to plant and water those this day? This is a moment in the life of our country in which at the same time that we are choosing which soils to water, the earth is also being upturned. That is a chaotic process. If any of you have ever put your hands into a garden, you know it's a process that changes things. Today, I want to ask you, encourage you, even if focusing on inequality or questions of justice leaves you feeling uneasy, or even if you know it's the exact right conversation that you want to be involved in and we should be involved in here at Wellsprings. It can only be answered authentically by saying this, that yes, today, I, you, we are choosing to water those seeds of love and justice and compassion and kindness. We are choosing to water those today to be guided by the fact that this is a universalist congregation and that it's not just some kind of noble aspiration, and in fact, maybe the very heart of reality, that there is a love at the center of things that will not die. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. A simple prayer today. A source of goodness, love, and kindness. Today, may we walk humbly, and love mercy, and do justice. Amen.